0: Amen. Hey, welcome. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, grab it meet me over in Daniel chapter 5. All right, Daniel chapter 5, as you're making your way there, let me, let me just set the stage by getting something out of the way. Daniel chapter 5 throughout history has been one of the most contested uh, chapters in the entire Bible because secular historians have told us that Belshazzar, who is the king in Daniel chapter 5 that ends the kingdom of, of Babylon, didn't exist. They they said, you see, this is why Christianity is silly, because these myths um, just perpetuate themselves through this fictional um, writing that we see in the Bible. And the reality is that there was a guy named Nabonidus, who was, I'm sorry, I I pronounced that wrong, Uh, Nabonidus, who was the last king of the Babylonian Empire, and everybody knows that. Well, that all sounded really good until 1854 when archaeologists discovered in southern Iraq a cylinder which was inscribed by a prayer of Nabunidus that actually said that his kingdom and his son, Belshazzar, who ruled together. Now, you're going to see this later on in Daniel chapter 5 where Belshazzar promises Daniel, if he can interpret a dream, that he'd be the third leg in this that makes the kingdom which would have been ruled by his dad, him, and whoever interpreted the dream. Yo, why do I tell you that? Because listen to me, well next time you send your kid off to college and some secular historian comes up and tries to tell them that the Bible is all a bunch of fables and, and they try to trick them and manipulate them into it, just tell that professor, hang on just a little bit. History will catch up, the Bible has always been true, it always will be true, and just trust this word because for thousands of years it's continued to prove itself true. So Daniel chapter 5, it is historically valid and we see that even as secular historians continue to find data. Alright, here's the big idea for the entire book of Daniel, like I've told you every single week, the book of Daniel is about teaching God's people how to learn to live in Babylon, this proverbial place that we live in without letting Babylon live in us. The year was 539 B.C. It had been nearly 70 years since the deportation of Israel into Babylon. And at this time, in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is an old man. He's almost 80 years old, and he's a bit more confident because, I mean, that's what happens when you get older, right? You tend not to care what anybody thinks. Daniel had lived this countercultural life, even as I showed you last week, there were four successive kings, and nearly 20 years had passed since Nebuchadnezzar had stepped off of his throne. Daniel is off into the distance at this point, and yet he still lives for God's glory. You're going to see that Daniel continues to retain his name. He continues to reject the king's gifts, and he boldly proclaims his faith in God. Let me take you through a useless information 101 session really quickly about what you should do if you ever find yourself stranded on a desert island, or if you're like Bear Grylls and you just do it for fun. They say that if you ever find yourself stranded on a desert island, you should should take a bunch of sticks as large as you can and build a big old help sign, and then you should build a fire with a bunch of leaves so that smoke goes up into the sky. Now, how do you build a fire? I don't know. I was born in the city, but you should do that. The reason why you do that, the reason why you do that is because you need to make a massive sign to be rescued. What you're going to see in Daniel chapter 5 is that God makes a massive rescue sign for the king of Babylon, for Belshazzar, by writing the walls on an inscription at the party that he's playing. Like a plane flying by, though, Belshazzar misses the entire thing. See, here's what you need to understand is that information without transformation is destructive, information without transformation is destructive. Did you know, did you know that even the Titanic, the the guy who was in charge of the Titanic was told by radio that there was an iceberg ahead of him? And I quote you, here's what he said, shut up, shut up. You are jamming my line and I am trying to work. One of the most tragic outcomes in life is whenever we proverbially say, shut up, God, shut up. I am trying to do my life and you keep giving me clear signs and you keep giving me clear opportunities for rescue like you do with Belshazzar, but we miss them. So here's what's going on in Daniel chapter five. Belshazzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's spoiled grandson, is sitting on the throne after four successive kings before him. And Belshazzar decides to celebrate his kingship by throwing a massive banger of a party. How do we know that? Well, the very first verse tells you wine, and in the, in the Aramaic, which is written, it actually means lots of wine. Here's what's crazy about this scenario, though. As they are getting drunk off of all of this stuff at a party, historically speaking, we know that this is the very night that the Babylonian empire is going to be overthrown. We also know, based on all the evidence we have, Nebuchadnezzar would have, I'm sorry, Belshazzar would have known this. He was like Boris Johnson, partying it up during the middle of COVID. Why would he do that? Well, at some point, he just recognized that it's all gone anyway. So let's just party like it's 1999. So they grab all their strong drink, they begin to get hammered, and they, they just decide that they're going to make the largest mockery ever. And they say, hey, go get all the stuff that my grandfather stole from the temple, all of the, all the vessels in there, and let's just get drunk from those things. He takes the holy things of God and he makes a mockery out of it. He, he doesn't just get drunk off of them. He actually worships, it says, he worshiped the false gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone with them. Then verse 5. Immediately, it says, immediately as they're all partying it up, a finger appears and begins to write on the wall something terrifying. Imagine what it had been like to be there. You're hanging out. You're making some of the dumbest decisions. You feel like you're back in college. You're doing some of the dumbest things you could ever imagine. And all of a sudden, a finger appears out of nowhere and starts to write on the wall. It says that their color turned white. Y'all, you wouldn't need a 12-step program because I think you'd stop drinking immediately if you saw that. But the abruptness of this, the abruptness of this is super important. Here, here's the application for you and I. There's going to come a time in all of our lives where God isn't going to allow us to continue to make a fool out of him. Right? Remember, remember I told you that God was patient with the king of Babylon. He was patient with the country. 70 years had passed by, but Babylon just wouldn't listen. Here's what I've noticed. I've noticed for many of us, we don't We don't get drunk off of God in a mockery of ways like they did, but we get drunk oftentimes off the overindulgence of the stuff of this world. Our wine, our wine might be the abundance of stuff. The more we have, the more we spend, and the more we think it's going to satisfy us. And God has been patient. He's been patient with all of us. More than patient, he's blessed us. Like we are some of the wealthiest people in the entire world. And yet for a lot of us, instead of stewarding those resources for God's glory, we just step in and we need more. We need more stuff. And here's the question I have for all of us. When is enough enough? When is enough enough? Like, let's be honest, your dream home that many of us have, you live in it for a couple years, it's no longer your dream home because you see the bigger one getting built down the street or your brand new car. It wears off pretty quickly, and then you look at your neighbors, and you want theirs. For others of us, our wine is power and control. We just feel like the more powerful we are, the more control we have, so what we do is we live for my kingdom come, my will be done, because it's a lot easier than living for thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And, and, and here's what I want you to think of. I don't want you to think about power and control like being the boss or being the president, although we, we tend to hunger for those things too. But what about the power and the control to just take care of our own lives? So, so you get up and you go to Publix and you take care of all your own groceries because honestly, you don't really need to rely on God for those things. You know, I have a friend that just got back from Nigeria and he was telling me, he's like, we had this all night prayer session and, and And at the end of that, one of the pastors comes up to him. He says, man, can I just tell you, I feel really sorry for you American Christians. And he's sitting there thinking in his head, what is he talking about? We got big churches with big budgets and, you know, our lives are pretty comfortable. And he says, you know, you never really have to rely on God. And because of that, you miss out on so much. I'll tell you, the most, the most convicting thing anybody has ever told me came from whenever I was on a trip to Kenya 12 years ago, I was teaching a, A class there, a New Testament class, and a pastor comes up to me, and and we're friends. He goes, Billy, I just got to tell you, the thing that makes me most sad is that your dogs have a better life than my kids. For others of us, our wine really is mocking God, overtly. Some of you are sitting in this room or watching online because it's raining outside, and you're thinking, do they really believe this silly stuff? Like, they really believe that God wrote on a wall? They really believe that this stuff can happen? Yes, we do. (laughs) We, We really do. I mean, we really believe that God can supernaturally speak. Listen, if, if you can't continue to limit God by your own rational capacities. Because if you do, do you understand that if you're all-knowing, if you know how everything should work, well, essentially, you're God. Isn't it rational to think that maybe God's ways aren't your ways? Maybe there are things about God that you're not going to know, and even the good things or the bad things. Listen, if I could figure out everything that God does all the time, he's not a God that I want to worship. God still moves in powerful ways. He still does. He still speaks. He still heals. And he still changes lives. I love, I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. Listen to what he says. Yes. Yes, we do believe that in one moment, through the precious blood of Jesus, the blackest soul can be made white. We do believe that in a single instant, the sins of 60 or 70 years can be absolutely forgiven and that the old nature which has gone on growing worse and worse can receive its death wound in a moment of time while the life eternal may be implanted in the soul at once. I don't know about you, but I choose to believe that. And not only do I choose to believe it, but I've seen it. I've seen it happen in people's lives around here, and I've watched God continue to do amazing things. We have to stop putting God in a box and limiting his powerful work that he still does today. I'm pretty convinced that we would see a whole lot more miracles if we actually believe that he could do it. So immediately, this hand appears. It appears on the wall, and while it's still writing at the king's party, they, they kind of freak out. Now, ironically, ironically Belshazzar does exactly, he does exactly what his grandfather did, right? He, he calls in the magicians and the enchanters to interpret the dream, and spoiler alert, they can't do it. Maybe the greatest miracle in the entire book of Daniel is how these guys still have a job. These guys, though, they represent what I would say is the greatest danger for all of us today. They represent the counterfeit wise men that you and I tend to turn to for the answers to life's deepest questions. Instead of turning to God, they turn to some cheap counterfeit. You all sometimes in our lives, that might be the science that comes into our minds, Right, That can never be wrong because the scientific method says that the supernatural isn't possible. I'm going to lean back into what seems to be true. And listen, I love science. I'm pro-science. I'm pro-doctor. Like I love all that stuff, but I know a lot of these guys, and I know them well enough to know that they're not always right. By the way, science was never meant to answer those deep why questions of life. You get that, right? Science was always meant to answer the what questions in life, and the moment they stop answering the what questions and answer the why questions, they stop doing science and they start doing theology. Y'all, politicians are never going to be able to answer the deepest why questions in life. It doesn't really matter how much they overpromise and underdeliver you. They're not going to be able to answer those questions. Your parents can't satisfy your deepest desires in life. And let me just tell you, the love of another won't do it either. And if you think that you're going to buy into, you complete me, you obviously haven't been around that long because they were never meant to complete you. God was. By the way, I say this at every wedding that I do. The reason why most marriages fail is not because you don't love each other. It's because you love each other too much. It's because you put the entire weight of God on one another, and then you crush each other under the weight of that. God is supposed to be supreme and full in your life, and then you are supposed to enjoy one another and all your flaws. Because I promise you, Hoss, you got some flaws too. The thing, the thing that you have to understand is this, is all those things are meant to answer good questions, but they're not meant to answer deepest questions. And if we're not careful, we will make the same mistake that the Babylonian kings continue to make. We will trade in God for a counterfeit, and they will never answer those questions. Listen, you need a word, but you don't need a word from people or society. You need a word from God. So do I. Verse 10. That's what it says. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your colors change There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the day of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king. By the way, let me just pause really quickly. If some of you are confused and you're like, hang on, I thought there were four successive kings. That word in Aramaic, father, it actually means something more like ancestor or relative. Uh, There wasn't a word for grandfather in their language. So what she is basically saying is your granddad. Your granddad made him the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. A couple details to point out here. First, it is absolutely astronomical and crazy that the queen would even approach the king like this. Back in those days, if the queen walked into the king's presence without being invited in, she'd have been killed immediately. This is why she starts with, "O oh, king, live forever." Scholars will tell you that this queen was most likely Nebuchadnezzar's wife, most likely King Belshazzar's grandmother. What that means is she would have experienced everything that had happened. She would have watched her husband, go to the throne and have all of the power in the entire world and then become, if you will, mentally incapacitated to the point in which he became like an animal. And then God would humble him to the point in which he would regain his strength and become a worshiper of God. And imagine being her and she's seeing the scene of Groundhog Day happen all over again. She's watching in her grandson and play out what had happened in her husband. And instead of telling Belshazzar, you're an idiot, she says, no, look to Daniel. Look to Daniel. What I want you to notice is that even though Daniel most likely is somewhere off in obscurity, been forgotten for 20 years, he had developed a character and a reputation that the queen never forgot how God had used him. See, when we understand that the underlying theme of the entire book of Daniel is this, how for me and you to live in this proverbial Babylon without letting it live in us, this gives you the game plan for how God wants to change the world. So let me give you two things really quickly for God's plan to change the world. Here it is. Number one, live a life of integrity. Live a life of integrity. See, the reason why Daniel was able to speak is because he had developed a reputation through a long life of integrity. And in a moment where most of us would either get scared or get angry because we feel like God is absent, he does none of those things because he trusts God. The reason that the queen could speak to him and call him and refer back to him is because even through his life of terror, he never rejected God and he was always faithful in his character. Yeah, I read a a story recently about a guy named James Dottie. This man—he was brilliant. He was a professor at Stanford University, and he was a neuroscience scientist. I'm sorry, he's a neurosurgeon, and he developed life-changing radiation that actually healed a lot of people of cancer. The brother was not only brilliant; he was filthy rich, and because of that, he decided that he was going to donate thirty million dollars to charitable donations until the dot-com era hit. And if you're old enough to remember that, in 2000 everything crashed, and he lost all of his wealth except for $30 million. All of his financial advisors told him, hey, look, you don't need to give it away. People will understand you've lost everything, and if you give this away, you'll have nothing left. You know what he said? He says, I'm a man of integrity, and what I need you to understand is I've committed to this. I'm going to do it. Here's what he said. One of the most persistent myths in our society is that money will make you happy. Growing up poor, I thought that money would give me everything that I did not have. It would give me control, power, and love when I finally realized that I had all the money I'd ever dreamed of, and I discovered that none of it ever made me happy. So I'm going to decide, he says, I'm going to decide to give it away all anyway. And then he says this, he was the first time in my entire life that I had discovered the true meaning of happiness. That in my philanthropy and in my opening up my hands, God actually used my integrity to change my own heart. Here's my question for you. When God calls your number, are you going to be in a position to speak, or will you be disqualified because of the the things that come into your world or whatever? What, What you do in your life when you're on the mountaintops and when you're on the valleys matters tremendously. Like Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, When you put your head down and when you live a life of integrity and character, even when nobody sees it, there will be a time in your life when God will give you a platform. It might be on a stage, but most likely it'll be sitting next to somebody's bedside where you get to speak life into people because you were faithful with the things that God gave you. You get my point? Living a life of integrity positions you to be seen by the lost world, like the queen, the people that have influence. And someday, someday, if you will do that, you'll have the opportunity to speak the gospel into people around you. I'm convinced sometimes that we have this whole evangelism thing backward. Like we think we just go knock on a door and tell people about Jesus. Look, that might work because God's powerful, but most likely the way that you do it is you live a life of integrity and you walk with Jesus so that when that day comes, when somebody needs to call you, they can because you were always that person that was reliable. When people ask you for the hope that you have, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be able to tell them about the hope that you have in Jesus that makes you steady because you built your life on a firm foundation. See, Daniel did not have to force himself into the king's palace. He never did. All he did was he lived a life devoted to character because he trusted God, and when his time came, he spoke boldly. Here's number two. Be in the world without being of the world. Notice, notice that Daniel retains his name. He refuses to culturally assimilate, but he also isn't a jerk about it. You ever notice his job titles? He was a magician, an astrologer. You know know what's common about those job titles? They're so anti-God. The titles that the world had given Daniel were anti-God, and yet Daniel lived for another kingdom. So instead of always fighting against it, he lived in the world without living of the world because he lived for a better kingdom. Y'all, in 2023, if you're going to choose to walk with Jesus, there will be cultural pressure to assimilate, and you will be called a bigot. If you go with God on things like biblical marriage, people are going to hate you, but the reality is you should go with God on those things without being a jerk. Like, here, Let me just say this. Yes, we believe. Yes, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman and for the rest of your life. We, we absolutely believe that. But we also believe that all sexual sins are sexual sins. Like, it, it, you know, the sin of same-sex marriage is no different than the rampant affairs and the porn addictions that are destroying our culture today. And if we're going to call out one, let's all call them all. But we have to. What we have to do is hold to conviction without compromising love. You know, something you might not know about me is my favorite aunt in the entire world is gay, married and has adopted four kids. Try to navigate that as a pastor. One time we were living in Durham, she called me and Allison, and she says, hey, me and Lisa are coming through, and I just want to know where a good hotel is to stay, and I was like, hotel? What are you talking about? Come stay at our house. So they come reluctantly. They come and they stay at our house, and we have gifts for them and their kids, and we take them to the Museum of Life and Science in Durham, and we do all this stuff, and the last day before she's leaving, she says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I was like, yeah. She said, I know you hate me, and you think I'm going to hell, and you hate my lifestyle. Why do you care so much about loving me? I, I was blown away. I was like, at least I don't, I don't hate you. I love you. And, and, I, and just because you choose a lifestyle that I actually think is wrong, and it's going to lead you to, to places that aren't going to be healthy for you because God has something better for you, here's what I know is that God didn't wait for me to clean up my mess before he pursued me, right? Romans 5 eight. even while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And because Jesus loved me that way, I want to love you that way. Write this down. The, The way of Jesus is to have conviction without compromise, but also love without limits. It's to hold that tension together, and that's what Daniel did too. See, he refused to eat the king's food. He refused to take the king's name, but he loved the king, and he didn't reject his humanity. Some of us need to figure out how to keep our name without destroying our witness. We need to learn the art of love without compromise. Let me give you one practical way to do that. Everything in society wants you to limit people's identities to one thing, to have a singular identity, like that's who you are. You realize that's not biblical at all. What we need to do is we need to stop limiting people's identities to a singular issue and start expanding their identities to these multi-dimensional ways that God sees you. Let me just tell you, you are more than gay, You're more than gay. You're made in the image of God. You're more than a failure. You are more than divorced. When you you wrap your minds around this and you stop singling in on one specific issue, you can actually see people as so much more complex than that. And that's where God tends to move. All right, so the queen. The queen, she comes into the king and she says, Hey, Daniel, verse 12, "he, he will show you the interpretation. So they go and they get Daniel. Daniel's off somewhere. And Daniel tells the king that he can show him the interpretation. But remember what the king says, if you look at it in the text, he says, hey, if you'll show it to me, I'll give you you the kingdom, I'll give you purple, and I'll give you gold, and you'll become a ruler like me. That that was a big deal. Belshazzar was about to make Daniel the most powerful human being on the planet. What's amazing to me is Daniel doesn't care. Daniel's like, you can keep your kingdom, you can keep your gold, you can keep your purple, I don't really care. Why? Because Daniel was living for a better kingdom, and he wasn't impressed by the powers of this world. See, before Daniel ever gives the king the interpretation, watch this, he shares the gospel with him. I want to show you this, and I want to draw a couple applications for us. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel, he answered and he said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This is super important. Daniel wasn't motivated by power or position. He was motivated by God. And because of that, what you need to notice is that he tells the king, you can keep all your gifts, but he doesn't reject the king's request. You see that? See that conviction without compromise and love without limits. He does both of these things at the same time. What you need to understand is the thing that motivates your heart the most is the thing that you're going to leverage your life for. The only thing That motivated Daniel's heart was God's kingdom, and that drove everything that he did. And then because of that, it stripped the king of his leverage over Daniel's life. See, what this position does for Daniel is it actually gives him power because, well, the king has no power over him. When you don't need status to become powerful, you actually become powerful. With that in mind, listen to what he says. Oh, king, oh, king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship, greatness, and glory, and majesty. If you underline words in your Bible, that word gave is so important. God gave your grandfather the kingdom, Belshazzar. God gave it to him. He didn't earn it. Listen, when you understand this, that God is the one who gives, well, what you begin to do is you begin to see your life more in stewardship than ownership. Just like God gave King Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, just like he placed him in this position, listen to me, he gave you everything you have too. When we understand that Neb didn't earn his way to the kingdom, that God gave it to him because God is the one who entrusts everything that we have to us, well, it actually makes us view our lives completely different. Let me say it like this. God gave you your spouse. You know that, that long section in Ephesians 5 that most domineering men like to quote, like wives submit to your husbands? Do you realize the main thrust of that passage? Husbands, lay down your life for your wife like Christ did the church to make her beautiful and spotless and blameless. You know, that's a stewardship. To, 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 to take this beautiful thing, this treasured possession that God gave you and steward it well for his glory. Now, wives, he really does say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If you ask Allison, she'll tell you you doesn't deserve that. We don't do it because you deserve it. You do it because God commanded it. Like God is steward of this thing called marriage. <laughs> we always say this in any marriage counseling thing we do. Allison's like, I never had a problem submitting to him when he was laying down his life for me. You see that symbiotic relationship that happens there? Here's another one, y'all. God gave you your kids. You know what that means? God gave you your kids. That means that they, you don't own them. You steward them. And when you understand that, you understand that your job is to raise good human beings, disciple them, and send them out. The goal is not to hoard your kids. The goal is to send your kids. When I was working at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, we, we had the honor of sending out a ton of missionaries. I'm talking like, I think there's over 500 international missionaries currently on the field that were members of the Summit Church. And every year that we would do this, do you realize the greatest hindrance to sending at the Summit Church was not the young adults that were going, it was their parents? Oh, we would get emails. I would get emails. There's no way you're sending my kid there. That's a dangerous place. And I just paid a lot of money for their Duke education and they're going to go and they're going to get a job and they're going to do, they're not going. What if, and listen, I have four kids. This is extremely difficult. I get this. What if we stopped training our kids to achieve the American dream and we started training them to achieve the God's kingdom dream instead? What do you think would happen if we, if we stopped looking at ourselves as owners and started looking at ourselves as stewards? God, God's word actually says that you should shoot them out as arrows into the face of the enemy. Imagine if you thought about your kids like that. Are you equipping them to be sent out into this world? God gave you your job. Like everything that you have and what he wants you to do is stop living for a paycheck and start intersecting your life with the things you're already doing and do it with gospel intentionality. Like what if you leverage your skills, your talents, and your glory to do amazing intentional work for God's glory and do it with integrity? You get my point? Write this down. Life is about stewardship, not ownership. We manage the assets that God has entrusted to us and we steward them to his glory. Daniel's like, don't get it twisted, Bell. Don't get it twisted. If God gave it, he can take it away. And what you're about to find out, King, is he's going to take it away because what you've done is you've robbed God of his glory and you've taken it all for yourself. Isn't it amazing what an 80-year-old man can say? Right? He just says what he thinks. Verse 19. And because of the greatness that he gave him, talking about his grandfather, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory taken from him. See? God gave Neb so much power that it corrupted him. You know, secular psychologists have been saying since the beginning of time that there are really three main sins that are going to take us all out if you're not careful. Money, sex, and power. One of those three things tends to take out everything. Get in your mind. The people who have been taken out, it's one of those three things. For Neb, it was power. He thought he was so powerful that, that he would live for his own kingdom, and yet all of his authority was on loan from the king of kings. Verse 21, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and he was made to be made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Though you knew all of this. Is that not the most condemning statement ever? He knew it all because he would have been a child watching this happen to his grandfather. His grandfather would have been humbled and ultimately Ultimately, he would submit to God, and instead of following suit, he pridefully takes his own position of power and falls into the same exact trap that many of us fall into. You know, Daniel Daniel is showing you and I that the number one sin that will separate most of us from God is this. You ready? Most of us will not worship God as God. What we will do is we'll take credit for our own successes, We will fall into the same trap instead of recognizing that God is the one who positioned us in the place to be successful and stewarding that, what we'll do is we'll believe the lie that we did it all on our own. And that same power, that same power that many of us possess is the same thing that is going to be our greatest downfall if we aren't careful, because what we will do is we will live for our own glory instead of God's glory. And that's why, my friends, oftentimes God's judgment is actually his love and his mercy. Because God loves you too much to let the sins that are inside of you kill you. Here's what I would say. He will continually pursue you and love you because ultimately, one way or another, he's going to humble you. You will either humble yourself and receive his glory or one day it's not going to go that well. What you need to recognize is that the hand of God is on your life. And let that humble you. Verse 23, but, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. See this is key to the passage. Belshazzar's war was ultimately against God. You, you got to understand there's a vertical dimension in all of our life to where when we set up these paradigms we're actually not going to war against one another. Our our inherent independence is actually a rejection of God. Genesis chapter 3 says the same thing. The very first sin that entered the world was man's autonomy. It was us wanting to be our own gods and this is what he says, you're actually rejecting God. God is the one who delegated you authority on earth, and when you took that authority, you made the lie a reality in your own life. It's you that did all this, and then you robbed God. This is super important because it reminds you that life is about stewardship, not ownership. And this is what he says, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose is all your ways, you have not honored. See, we might not worship like false gods, like gold and silver and iron. But the reality is, is all of us have a propensity if we're not careful to worship idols. We, we look to money to satisfy us when we all know inherently that the richest people on earth aren't the people with the most money. Do you, do you know why most of us turn to idols? He's going to show you right here. Let me, let me tell you why. Because honestly, it's more about control than anything else. We can't control God, but we can control our stuff. Right, if I, if I create my nice little life and put it in boxes and have my budget and do this and I do this and I have my vacations, and I have my quiet time and I, I go on my runs and I exercise, I'm actually creating these little boxes that can control. But here's what Daniel tells him. They don't work. See, idols, they don't hear, they don't know because they're not real. <laughs> like, like I've told you before, idols are simply misplaced worship. They're the things that we look to for our satisfaction. And, and, and they tend to be good things, Right? Idols are good things that we elevate to ultimate things that ultimately become God things and they destroy us. Like your spouse was never meant to fulfill you. And if you look to love to complete you, that might be an idol. Your money can satisfy some of you, but it can't complete you. And if you look to it for that, it might be an idol. Your body image, if it makes, if you had to look a certain way to feel good about yourself, well, honestly, that might be an idol. Idols are good things that we elevate. Uh, Tim Keller, listen to what he says. He's so good. Sometimes it takes failures to recognize that we've turned goods into gods. King Belshazzar didn't get it, nor did he care because, well, what you're going to see is that very night, the Persians are coming, king's going to die, and the entire kingdom is going to be gone. See, there's a warning in this for all of us too. At some point, at some point, there's going to come a reckoning. At some point, the signs that God continues to give are going are gonna to stop and he's going to he's gonna come and we're either going to humble ourselves to the king of heaven or we're going to live for our own glory apart from him. And I know that's tough, but God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for you. He wants you to live for him and that's why he continually pursues you. Now to the interpretation because everybody wants to know the interpretations. You know how many times I've been asked like, when are we going to get to like the end time prophecies? We're getting there. Listen, verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of those three words, mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Those three words, numbered, weighed, and divided. Mene, mene means numbered. God has numbered your days and your kingdom is being brought down. You know, you know what's amazing about this? I told you at the very beginning, there's about 70-year period of time that has happened between the first chapter of Daniel and Daniel chapter 5. Jeremiah 29 is the passage that we name city church after. If you remember, there was a false prophet that comes in named Hananiah, and, and the nation of Israel is being deported from Israel to Babylon, and Hananiah says, don't worry, wait it out. It'll be about two years. You remember what God told the nation of Israel? That's not true. It'll be 70 years. 70 years, and then I will come. 70 years later, this very night, the kingdom of God is about to happen. Here's why that's so important. Listen, the days are numbered. God will redeem his people On this earth, he is going to accomplish his plan. Like I told you last week, God is in absolute control of everything, even whenever it doesn't seem like it. When things seem dire, God knows exactly what he's doing. And sometimes it feels like it happens just in a minute, but he's been working in the background for a long time. He's been given signs for a long time. The 70 year period for the king felt like it happened in a moment, but that's not true. Mene, Mene, he tells King Belshazzar, your days are numbered and they're coming to an end. Then he says, Tekel. Tekel, which means weighed. It doesn't mean weighed like glory, like there's a weightiness to it. It literally means weighed, like on a scale weighed. Belshazzar, God is going to put your life on a scale of judgment, and guess what? You're going to be found guilty. Now, what you need to know is that at the end of our lives, God's going to do the same thing for all of us. There's going to be a proverbial scale where he's going to weigh your good deeds from your bad deeds. And the reality is, is there's going to come a time where if your good deeds aren't as such, you're going to be found guilty too. You you know what God's measurement is? Perfection. Here's what it says, is if you've lived a perfect life, never sinned, everything's been perfect, never disobeyed God, never walked away from him and fully trusted him, well, he's going to find you innocent. If not, you won't. David Platt, he wrote a book called Radical a while back, and he, object, he raised the objection, well, what about the innocent man in Africa? Like, what about him? If he's never heard the gospel, does he go to heaven? You know what he says? Yeah, of course he does. The only problem is, is that guy doesn't exist. All of us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans, 5, uh, Romans 3 says. All of us have. And all of us are going to have tekel. We're going to stand before God on this judgment seat, except there is another way. See, there's another way. The way is that God himself would put on flesh and he would substitute himself for you. We call this the gospel. By the way, next time you see these like coexist stickers as cute as they look, if, if that's all true, that means that Jesus' death was unnecessary. But Jesus being perfect would literally substitute himself for you in your place so that he could give you his righteousness. Why is that possible? Well, because your unrighteousness came through one man named Adam. Adam being the representative head for all of humanity because he fell and parted or imputed his unrighteousness onto every single human being that's ever lived. And because one person could do that, well, another person named Jesus could live a perfect, sinless, righteous life. And because he did that, he could stand before the throne, he could tackle, he could put his life there, and he'd be found completely worthy. And because he was completely worthy, he died a death he didn't deserve and that he could give you his righteousness. See, at the end of your life, you can either receive God's gift righteousness or you can stand on the throne of your own life. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. When that tickle happens, when you stand on that weighed scale, what will be the results? Will you live for your own righteousness, your own independence, or Will you receive the gift righteousness for Jesus paying your sin debt for you? The only way you're going to do that is humility. It takes a humility to understand that God is the one who does it. And then parson. Parson. Parson means divided. Historians will tell us that this very night, the Persians will come in. They will stop up the Euphrates River. They will walk into the city center. And they will destroy Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great will become Babylon the Nothing. The Babylonian Empire will end. The Medo-Persians will take over the kingdom, just like Daniel tells Belshazzar. Alexander the Great will take over from there, and ultimately the Romans are going to come over. By the way, that's the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2, where God tells Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom is going to crumble just like this. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede Receive the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here's the lesson of Daniel chapter 5 in a nutshell. At the end of our lives, we can either be the personification of Babylon, where God sends rescue sign after rescue sign after rescue sign, and we continue to proverbially live for our own kingdom, or we can live for another kingdom. The choice is yours. You can be humbled like Neb, or you can be destroyed like Bel. See, like Babylon, God has sent you and I a messenger into this world. He has put out the smokestack, he has raised a voice, and his name is Jesus. Like this, God put his son on a rescue mission to write on the walls of your heart. And the only way that you're ever going to receive this gift is to be humble enough to receive it. See, what I don't want to happen to you is I don't want you to be caught off guard like Bell was where God is working in the background of your life, it's going to feel like a moment of time. And yet, God wants you to know that he is written on the walls of your life and all you have to do is receive him. So many, many, your days are numbered. Last Sunday, right after church, I left this building immediately, drove down to, drove down to Northside Hospital and sat in the room with one of my buddies while his mom is in the ICU. And as we're praying, as we're talking, Psalm 90 comes up again. Moses says, teach us to number our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. Because the reality is, is whether or not you're in that room or not, that day is coming for all of us. There's two things that are guaranteed in life. April 15th, your taxes, and death. The question that you have to ask yourself is with your days being numbered, will you start to live for your kingdom or will you continue to ignore the writing on the wall? Teckle, teckle. There's gonna come a time in all of our lives There's gonna come a time in all of our lives where we will either pay our own punishment or receive God's grace. Let me give you a little statement that I think is worth, that is just worth memorizing. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And he did it to wash our sins away. You should teach that to your kids. There's a time when all of us are gonna have to receive that, or else parson parson, the things of this world are going to continue to divide us. James says you'll become a double-minded man. You'll be stretched apart by everything, looking for your hope and satisfaction in this world, but it'll never fulfill you. So what if today, what if today we saw the smokestack, the big old sign of God's kingdom, and we just received that? Maybe, Maybe for you, it's the very first time you've done that. Like I told you last week, there's no shame in that. For others of us, you might know this, but you're really not living for it. What if today was the day that all of us started living for another kingdom, understanding that our days are numbered? There's going to be a day where God's going to come, and if we don't, all the things in this world will continue to divide us because they overpromise and underdeliver. So we are going to choose to live for a better kingdom. That's Daniel five. Father, help us. Help us, I pray. God, I pray that you would help us to receive. Because honestly, these are not easy things to receive. If they were, we would do it. But the reality is, God, even in our unbelief, help our unbelief. Help us to live for your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that we would lay down our stuff, receive your kingdom, and live for you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way that you tip the scales in righteousness in a way that we never could. We love you, and we pray all this in your name.